0: So, let's explore this whole thing about difficult emotions a little bit more. Difficult emotion and and the nexus with energy and image. Difficult emotion has energy in it, but it's kind of the energy is caught in a vortex, if you like, uh, an unhelpful vortex. If that difficult emotion can give rise to an image or an image can constellate there um, in that or through that um, then sometimes what happens is the image um, functions in a way that the energy that's caught up in the unhelpful vortex in the difficult emotion the energy harmonizes. It's somehow allowed to flow in this example actually in all the examples okay, um, it's allowed to flow or it's channeled it, 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 the, the image kind of creates a channel if you like for their energy afflictive or difficult emotions they hold and uh, they trap energy we could say like that there's a lot of energy in there but it's trapped it's in the vortex um, in some kind of vortex um, and that energy I mean psychic energy by the way, when I use the word psychic on this retreat, I, I don't mean uh, extrasensory perception (ESP) and all that. I mean um, of the psyche, so energy of the psyche. Psychic um, is, is psychic energy is trapped in in uh, by by the afflictive emotion in the afflictive emotion, and also the um, subtle physical energy of the energy body. So let's let's look at this. Quite, let's take as an example anger. It's quite interesting, uh, just by way of example. Anger has a lot of energy in it, and let's make a differentiation right away. Anger and ill will. If I just use these words in two different ways, so anger is not not necessarily the same as ill will. Ill will means. Um, The will, the wanting, the wishing for harm or suffering to befall another. Um, I want them to suffer. I want them to hurt. I want them to be in pain or be humiliated or this or that. That's what what I would call ill will. Anger often does include ill will, but it doesn't need to. It's something um, that can actually be freed from ill will. And I'm, I'm going to explain this a little more in a minute. But anger has a lot of energy in it. And sometimes what happens is a person actually feels quite low energy or a bit depressed or down. And actually what's going on there sometimes, actually what's going on is that anger is there, wrapped up or sort of uh, down in the being, so to speak. Not ill will, but anger. And uh, it's blocking the energy, so to speak. It's there, and, and it needs recognizing and allowing. And what's happening is some, somehow a person is not allowing themselves to see that anger and feel it, and not allowing the flow of that anger. And that's keeping the whole being in a kind of low-energy, depressed state. When the anger is connected with, recognized, and allowed uh, as energy, then the energy body can actually um, expand instead of being contracted and down, it can actually expand, become big or even very big and the awareness expand with it. Maybe there will be an image with that. For example, it could be an image of a, I don't know, a wrathful deity or a demon or something. Maybe it's without image. But that Anger in the energy body is then when it's felt and allowed and open to and allowed to open the energy body, it, it is at that point, it's not an afflictive emotion anymore. It's more like creative energy, it's something we can do something with, use uh, to fuel a skillful response, etc. That uh, state of being low energy or slightly depressed or dull. For some people, it actually becomes kind of a default groove uh, for some people, much as for other people it's a state of more agitation that becomes a default groove, uh, the, the habit of the energy system, of the psyche of the being. And... Sometimes a person doesn't even realize that that's, uh, oh, we're in a groove here. Uh, They've become used to it over time, sometimes over years. They've got nothing much to compare it to. And they don't feel depressed. It's just the kind of a normal, kind of literally depression of the energy. And sometimes, as I said, what's going on there is something, for instance, anger or. Um, libido or eros or some kind of psychic energy is not recognized not felt and contacted and allowed to flow and and then the whole being is in this kind of low energy state when actually there's a lot of energy potentially available so a person thinks oh they have this kind of personality whatever and something else a little bit different is going on If, uh, let's take, stay with that example of anger, if, if an image constellates um, from, from the emotion, um, that image um, may be a very high-energy image to, that, that, that correlates with, that reflects the energy in the anger. So, for example, an image of a warrior or some other obviously energetic image. Um, but it might arise from the feeling of anger, the energy of anger, or actually from feeling into the low energy contracted state. I'm with this and then doesn't feel like there's energy and any energy at all. And suddenly this warrior image or this high energy image comes. Uh, interesting. But if we go into, as I said, this nexus of emotion, energy, image a little bit more and actually point out something that images, uh, they, they hold many shades of emotion. So they're actually, if you like, there's more, there's more to them generally than an emotion. Uh, So it can hold different qualities. of One image can hold at the same time different qualities, even seemingly contradictory uh, emotions, or different shades. It's quite a complex, rich thing, an image. There's a lot of, so to speak, information in it. I don't know if that's a very good word. So they hold um, quite a lot by way of emotion and shades of emotion. And and an image also holds more, and I'll talk more about this as as we go on in the retreat, because it can also hold, for example, a sense of duty. So when that liquid was poured in, what came with that was a sense of duty and the energy for that duty. So it's more than just an emotion. There's some some other meaningfulness and beauty and depth uh, that can be tied up, um, that is usually tied up in an image. So it's many shades of emotion, perhaps, not just one emotion, and actually more than just emotion. There is the aspect of soulfulness, which is more than emotion. It's more than heartfulness. It's this, um, as well as emotion, includes the psychic resonances, the meaningfulness, the depth, the sense of depth, of different kinds of beauty. All of this is, is, is one way of saying that an image is, if you like... A, a richer, more multi-dimensional, more complex, and multi-aspected phenomenon than an emotion. The image is very rich. <clears throat> now, I mentioned in the introductory talk that part of what we are interested in is um, expanding the range of uh, of of psychologically for ourselves, but also expanding the range, our range emotionally, and also our range of images that are meaningful and beautiful to us. So expanding the range of emotional image. this is, um, for me, an important aspect of imaginal practice, and it's interesting for, as an example of where we can get quite uh, limited in our Vision, if you like, in our conception regarding emotion and image. Um, John Coltrane, the great <coughs> jazz saxophone player uh, in the 50s and 60s, um, in his late period, it was, I mean, all his life, it was very high energy, intense music, but in his very last period before he died, it was ultra intense. I mean, I think the jazz world probably hadn't quite experience anything like that that's not quite true but it was it was really really um, intense music and um, he was friends by that point with the Indian sitar player Ravi Shankar and they would meet and they would listen to each other's music and study a little bit I think John Coltrane was more studying some Indian music but Ravi Shankar said to him at one point I'm disturbed by this uh, what I hear in your playing all the anger it disturbs me and John Coltrane was quite visible. I'm not angry and it wasn't that John Coltrane was out of touch with his anger. It was just that that intensity, that shrieking through the saxophone, that the screaming, the, the roaring, through. it was not anger in that sense. It wasn't ill will. It wasn't what Ravi Shankar thought it was. So Ravi Shankar's emotional view or vision of emotional range um, was was much smaller. And his image of what's uh, beautiful and what's possible and what's okay or even holy was was uh, smaller in, in this case than John Coltrane's. There's a distinction here, and it's important to make. Usually with anger, when we feel angry, we're, uh, there's two aspects. We're lost in the object. All the attention is on who or what we're angry at, judging this person or hating them, and we're not so aware of ourselves and our energy. And secondly, uh, usually, unfortunately, the case is when there's anger, there's ill will. We wish in some way harm, or that this person uh, suffers in some way. But in imaginal practice, There can be a kind of anger, uh, a kind of rage even, but one notices with imaginal practice um, that there isn't the same concern with the object or whoever I'm angry at. So there can be a warrior image, a raging warrior, fighting, but the enemy is not even seen in the image. It's not even so important. Uh, it's not there is no ill will so to speak the attention the relationship with the image is more on the imaginal figure itself entering into that uh into that for example that warrior image not so much with who i want to suffer and who i want to kill so i don't know what would be a better word here because i'm not talking about identifying with that, or literalizing a warrior image, or identifying or being tightly identified with that. But there's a kind of entering into uh, that those qualities, and that um, person of the imaginal figure, in this case the warrior, is tuned into, and not so much the object of the anger or the enemy. And there's a second aspect here in, in relation to all this, uh, which is sort of alluded to in that uh, example with John Coltrane or Ravi Shankar. So there can be a sense with an image that um, it gives a rightness, it gives a place, and even a kind of holiness, a kind of divinity or archetypal necessity, we could say, to... Uh, to what one is going through, to, to the image and the way the image then shapes what one is going through. It's different than an ego justification. So I feel usually when I'm angry I feel I'm completely right and this person is wrong and the ego just finds ways of wanting to justify itself and its stance and its actions or its obnoxiousness or whatever. This is different. This is more subtle. That through an image that's alive and soulful and meaningful, um, meaningfulness and place are given to uh, something that we're going through emotionally. So a person might feel, perhaps in a certain uh, community or um, uh, Group some alienation or isolation because of some difference or something, and out of that, there may be some loneliness, uh, and that's the emotion this emotion of loneliness. And feeling into that, um, perhaps uh, a a different image arises, and maybe it's a wanderer, uh, a solitary wanderer, and that wanderer in the image is alone maybe even has a degree of loneliness, but is somehow the emotion is transformed or shaded or given a whole other level of depth, level of meaningfulness and place um, through the image. It's no longer just just dukkha, just simple dukkha and alienation. It's given something, it's given a kind of beauty, it's in the words of James Hillman, a Pain has found its God, has found its uh, archetype, he really means. A pain has found its God. Through the image, it, 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 w- we find um, what, what its place is, really, psychically, and, and it's given, as I said, this depth and meaningfulness. Or again, in that image of the liquid being poured in through uh, the the crown of, of my head, it wasn't what that that did not lead to just a kind of let go of uh, this situation, drop your view, rob of this of this situation. But actually, what came was a kind of. Poise, a firmness, a resolve, and, an increase in energy, without taking away the difficulty of the situation and the the, the pain of it. Um, but it wasn't just let go, drop it, be peaceful. Something else. So <clears throat> we said we can have um, the intention of the direction of the samadhi, and through that sometimes um, what's difficult energetically or emotionally um, dissolves or gets uh, gradually turned into pleasant. That's one possibility. We can also just focus on the um, emotions skillfully work with uh, a skillful focus on the emotions and the the way they reflect in the energy body. And sometimes that can um, uh, gradually dissolve what is difficult, what's stuck or or painful in the midline, if if we're working there, uh, of the energy body. And sometimes, as I said, that becomes more subtle before it dissolves. Sometimes what happens is the emotion stays, gets maybe a little bit more subtle, but there's a sweetness uh, that pervades around it, the sweetness of connection, the sweetness of that pain, that difficulty being held, um, very, very important as a possibility. And sometimes being with an emotion more lucid can give rise to an image spontaneously. Uh, and, of course, we said uh, we can deliberately bring an image in relation to a difficulty, a helpful image in relation to a difficulty. But that image, whether it's spontaneous or deliberate, can um, also uh, um, uh, dissolve the difficulty, transform what's difficult in the emotions or the energy body. So this is interesting. One thing just to highlight, maybe a little bit of uh, inquiry for for. Uh, for you, is the reactions that we might have to these transformations might reveal attitudes and assumptions we have regarding emotions and our emotional life. So I see in different ways, I do this and the emotion dissolves, or I do that and it slowly dissolves or gets sweeter or turns pleasant, or this image comes and it dissolves and a difficulty um, transforms and becomes lovely or something like that. And maybe I think, oh, that can't be right, or that's wrong. Um, What's going on there? Or maybe I have the opposite attitude, and I think, I'm trying to meditate, I'm trying to do my samadhi, and this emotion is a nuisance. But the the reactions to the transformations uh, uh, reveal a lot about our attitudes to and assumptions about emotions, whether emotions are a nuisance and in the way, or just papancha, or whether, on the other extreme, we can assume that An emotion is kind of sacrosanct. It's something primary in the being, basic, and kind of there's a truth to it, and we need always to uh, respect it and not try and change it and be with it, etc. So as we meditate in different ways and we see different unfoldings of our experience... And when we notice our reactions to those different unfoldings that can tell us a lot about our attitudes and assumptions and also noticing what we're willing to try and what we steer away from in practice so we can be attached to certain views regarding emotion and energy and all that we might also be attached to always somehow wanting to know why a difficult emotion is there. So I feel sad and I want to know why. And of course, sometimes it's helpful and sometimes we can know why. But sometimes we don't know why uh, the sadness or whatever is there. It's not so obvious. Um, sometimes sadness is there, it's just actually a result of a physical uh, being physically low energy or something out of balance in the, en- in the, in the energy, in the physical energy. Sometimes it's even possible that we pick up other's sadness. It's not mine. And I'm, I'm hunting for a cause for it in my psychology, in my um, experience or my past. William Blake said, emotions are divine influxes. That's quite a different view. So sometimes something else is coming through us. Uh, it's not so much about another person, but some something from, you could say, another level of being. And it's an influx flowing in and manifesting as an emotion. So sometimes we're attached to knowing why sometimes we're always kind of looking for a reason um, or demanding a memory if there's an afflictive emotion. Demanding this grief or this fear that I can't seem to put on something in the present I look for a memory and that can be very helpful at times and sometimes we discover things sometimes you discover that we're making something up but to always seek a reason or demand a memory is putting too much pressure um, on the emotional and energetic life and it and it betrays a kind of um, set of assumptions there so with Uh, Again, uh, around the nexus of emotion, energy, image. Uh, Yogi, um, on retreat, uh, this is quite a while ago, but she reported a dream to me. Um, I can't remember if the dream was ages before, but it was uh, quite a comic dream. It was a row of of naked men um, standing there in in a line in the dream and masturbating uh, at the same time and then Uh, ejaculating simultaneously and and there was something quite a little bit comic in that. Um, But afterwards she was talking about it and she said oh, it's just life energy And uh, I say, oh, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. If you just say that, then actually what's happening, you just say, oh, that's just life energy, it's just an expression of life energy, that image, is what's happening is in that kind of interpretation, it's too broad. We're losing a lot of the subtlety, a lot of the particularities of that image, which was, uh, A, it's sexual, it's male, it's, um, uh, uh, there's something comic about it. It's very, very particular. Even it's more particular than whatever words we might put on, in like sexual or male or this or that, there's something utterly um, irreducible about an image. So in terms of reducing an image to energy, in this case just a vague energy, uh, careful of that because we, we lose a lot of the subtlety and distinction that images um, uh, contain so, so naturally to, that, to them sometimes we feel um, we're practicing or just in our life there is an emotion a strong emotion and and then out of that emotion comes an image as I mentioned before and I might even use the language the emotion constellates the image and we tend to think again or one person a person can think the emotion is what's primary um, but it doesn't actually necessarily imply that the emotion is what's primary and the image is what's secondary what comes out of the image as an expression of it or just a, a a representation of that emotion not necessarily uh it's not necessarily the case that the emotion causes the image or constellates the image even though i might use that language sometimes um or that the psychic energy causes the image um, it may be that an emotional upset indicates that an image is operating in the psyche but we're not yet conscious of it and the energy of the image is trapped in this vortex because it's not because the image is not quite con- con- conscious so the energy is coming from the image uh, is a different way around instead of emotion being primary uh, we could see that Image is being primary instead of the energy being primary. We can see the image is being primary. It may be that image is primary and what gives rise to emotion uh, and energy. So in relation to these three—energy, emotion, image—what's the truth? Which is the cause there? What's the truth? What? Is, which is the one that's primary? Well. Actually, like so many of these things, they all influence each other. They all, in Dharma language, say, dependently co-arise, or we could say they influence each other, they have an effect on each other. In some ways, we could say they're not really that separate. And, to bring in this other piece that I mentioned at the start of this talk, the views that we have are also part of all that. So, views uh, the views that I have of this image... Um, The the relationship with it, the views that I have of emotion, of energy, of the image, affect what happens. Now, this is true generally um, for our perceptions and our experience. But in this case, even more. Uh, Particularly, the view of which of these is primary, whether it's energy, emotion, or image... How I'm conceiving of that in the moment affects how things unfold the view that I have of what is primary affects how things unfold and I can experiment and see that for myself in practice it's very interesting and as I realize that it opens up a possibility can I play with different views And can I play with different views of what is primary here? And this becomes part of navigating imaginal practice. We'll talk about this more later. And really, a big part of what we're doing, as I'll come back to in another uh, later talk, is we're playing with the conception, the view, that image is primary, that fantasy and mythos are primary. We're playing with that view and seeing what that does. And just to finish, to put that, again, in a larger context, which I mentioned yesterday, the larger context is a vision of the Dharma, an understanding of the Dharma, as exactly that, as playing with views, with ways of looking. That's what the Dharma is. That's what practice is. We're practicing, uh, through lots of different practices, we're practicing a flexibility of view and of ways of looking. And through that, it's opening the range of our experience, Uh, And our perception, those two words I'm using as as synonyms, experience and perception, appearance, these these all mean the same thing. Through practicing flexibility and and, um, moving between different views and ways of looking, I see that it opens up the range of experience. And I see, ah, this way of looking, things appear that way. This other way of looking, they appear a different way. So meditation itself is, is the practice of different ways of looking. And seeing how appearances, experience, perception changes with different ways of looking, through that I understand the emptiness of any perception. It's not really like this. It looks like that. It seems like that. It appears like that. The perception, uh, the experience is like this because I'm looking in this way. And understanding the emptiness of that thing, uh, of things, of perceptions, of experiences, brings allows even more flexibility. Allows me to practice even more flexibility with ways of looking, because things are empty, because perceptions are empty. So this flexibility is both the path and a part of the goal. Just to. This is already something I said last night, but just to end, it's so important. Uh, We can conceive the the Dharma in different ways, and we're free to do that. Uh, And there's not necessarily, for a lot of it, there's not really a right or wrong. It's hard to prove it. So very common nowadays, maybe that we conceive, that we've kind of heard over and over and formed a conception of the Dharma very loosely, that it's try to always be present, because this is it. This is life. This what we're with, this breeze on the cheek, this raisin in the mouth, this footstep, whatever. Try to always be present. You don't want to miss this reality of this moment. This is all there is. This sense experience. And as well as that, try not to cling. Try to let go because everything's impermanent. Everything's flowing and changing. So try not to cling and and try to let go. And then try to be kind. And that may be, those three aspects might be our our sort of loose uh, conception of the Dharma. Or we might have a different conception, as mentioned, that's more influenced by uh, streams like the Advaita tradition, where the goal is always to be uh, in a a sense of oneness. All is one, or there is no self. No self is occurring. Um, Or... As I said, what I would say, what I want to encourage more vision on this retreat is that these, all of those being present, being in a sense of oneness, the perception of oneness. All, all of these are modes. They're modes of awareness, modes of sensitivity. They're ways of looking, they're temporary options. And we have a flexibility uh, to move between them and, and many, many more, many more than that. And, and Dharma, as I said, is the practice of this flexibility of modes of awareness, of modes of sensitivity, of ways of looking. So that a multiplicity, a range um, of perception, of experience is available to us as a sense, not as an intellectual idea, we actually sense all the different possibilities for us. We, We see them, we witness them, we experience them. And included in in this uh, range of, the, of these modes of ways of, of sensitivity, of awareness, this these range of ways of looking, included in that, as part of that range, by uh, subset, if you like, are types and modes and degrees of less clinging. So less clinging in this way or that way to this degree to that degree very deeply. That's included in that. And all this together as it opens up the possibilities of perception the perceptual possibilities and all of it shows us the emptiness of what we what we perceive the emptiness of things selves and things and that brings uh more and more freedom to the degree that we understand that emptiness in the heart in the being and it opens up, it allows us even more flexibility with the perceptual possibilities, the way we perceive the self, the way we perceive others, the way we perceive things and the world and the cosmos. And in a way, there's a kind of infinite range to that. So this whole central teaching of the Buddhas of not clinging, of, 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 of clinging... Um, being a cause of suffering and, and, and uh, being central in the Four Noble Truths, it's not so much that that's a way of living, trying to live without clinging, but uh, non-clinging, what it really offers us is a range of ways of looking. Uh, there's lots of different ways of not clinging, lots of different modes of that. So in, in the range of ways of looking, it includes going with the flow, being present, resting in awareness, if you know people that talk about that. Many, many more. Many ways of looking. So here on this retreat, we're also we're practicing this flexibility, this malleability, this multiplicity and uh, extension of the range of uh, ways of looking, modes of awareness. Not just one approach, one track. And part of that part of that included in that flexibility, as I said, is playing with the very view and the conception uh, regarding images. That's a central um, uh, thread or possibility of a way of looking or what forms ways of looking in imaginal practice. Thank you for listening.